Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast, with me, Christine Burns. In the last episode, we heard Sir Peter Salisbury, the MP for Leicester South, providing the welcome address to service providers attending the Life in a Day conference in the city. A Life in a Day was organised by Leicester's Lesbian, Gay and Bisexual Centre and promised practical ways to make public services LGBT friendly. The practical stuff was to come from a series of workshops, but to set the scene, Linda Bellos and myself were invited to deliver back-to-back keynote speeches. My speech will be featured in the next episode, but first, a word or two about Linda. Linda Bellos was born to a Jewish mother and a Nigerian father and raised in Brixton, so that's a rich vein of cultural experience to begin with. After marriage in 1970 and two children, Linda revealed another aspect of her identity in 1980, when she came out as lesbian. In 1985, she was elected a Labour councillor for nearby Lambeth and became leader of the council between 1986 and 88, making her only the second black woman to lead a local authority in Britain. Linda has accomplished many firsts, though, most notably creating Black History Month in the UK while chair of the London Strategic Policy Unit. In December 2005, she and her partner, Caroline Jones, were also among the first couples to sign a civil partnership in the UK. Caroline and Linda now run their own consultancy, Diversity Solutions, helping to improve equality and diversity outcomes within the commercial, public and voluntary sectors. So... Here's Linda. It's an incredible pleasure to be here, uh, to see so many people. Um, It's not often that one does see more than a handful, certainly in London, where people get very jaded and think they've heard it all before. Um, And yes, Peter, I do remember the rate-capping struggles that we engaged in. We were right! That woman was wrong on everything. (laughs) I want to start by setting a scene which I don't know. I'm an outsider to this area. I've come here many times. I've enjoyed coming here many times. But I know that one of the things that is happening within the wider community of, of the UK is that our status as LGBT people has moved from... No, perhaps it hasn't moved from. The context is we're often seen as victims, either of our own uh, self-inflicted lifestyle choice or whatever rubbish that they, they say. Then we're victims of homophobia. And... It's a mindset of how people see us that I think we have to struggle with about not being victims. The point I would make about the struggle for equality, is that I I didn't notice any discount on the form that Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs sent me to complete my tax form, and neither did I get one on my council tax. It didn't have a little box to tick to say, if you are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, tick here so we we won't charge you, we'll take off a bit because we're not going to give you any services. I don't remember that happening, ever. Consequently, I feel... That when I demand services that are appropriate and sensitive to my needs, it's on the basis that I'm bleeding paying for them, like the rest of us. That's the, that's the starting point. 
And it does mean that public services, public authorities that are bound by statute to deliver services to everybody who is eligible to receive them has to include LGBT, whether they like it or not. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point, which I've written here, is to slightly disagree with Peter about changing attitudes. Personally, I don't care what somebody thinks. I do care what they do. I think we will change attitudes, but I have to tell you from my experience and my struggles in fighting against racism, trying to change people's opinions is almost a waste of time. Change their behaviour and, as a consequence, they might actually discover that we are human beings without horns, etc. But I'm personally, I'm not bothered if they think that I do have a tail and two horns, etc. If that's what they think, let them think it. Let them not discriminate in the services that are rendered to me that I'm eligible to to receive. For me, that's the point. And I want to get on to the thing about how, because I think Peter's absolutely right, and I do commend this government for... They were very slow on getting rid of Section 28, and they were, you know, age of consent, all of those things, but we have made progress. We are in a different position today than we would have been with a different government. And, yes, the Amsterdam Treaty did... impose duties on the United Kingdom to comply with European law on, on, on equality. But we know that, they, that this government has chosen not to do it on age as fully as they ought to, and I would suggest that they might even be in breach, but who knows, nobody's going to take a case. Um, but another government might have complied more reluctantly. So I think that this government does deserve credit The chief issue I think that we are facing is not what the law says, but how do we make public authorities deliver services to us? Not simply, as some of us now are getting older. um, Social care may be an issue that we have to grapple with. And it's a big issue, and it's great to see CSCI here. Uh, But it's not the only issue. We are citizens of every community. There's no one community in the United Kingdom or in the world that does not contain LGBT people. It's not always easy for, for people from, particularly from minority and oppressed communities, to be out. But let me assure you, if you don't already know, that there are lesbians and gay, bisexual, transgender people in every single community on this earth and we live in a country in which it is easier to be out but we don't live in a country in which it is easy uh, to be out in every community some communities are very hard pressed and many of us understand why our brothers and sisters are not always able to be out but that doesn't alter the responsibility of any provider of public services whether they are in the public sector or, shall I say, through my gritty teeth, through the private sector, it's the duty to provide appropriate and sensitive services to everybody. And I think that using existing tools, and I'm holding up some of them, this is the code of practice on the duty to promote race equality, the code of practice on racial equality in employment, and the 
duty to promote disability equality. I haven't brought the document on gender because nobody's published it yet. And what on earth are the government doing on, about that one? But these are guidance which is statutory. That means it's not optional whether you do it. It has to be done. In all cases, the chair of the, uh, the ER, what's it, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, I'm sorry, I think of, still think of it as CHR, uh, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, when he was chair of the CRE, argued very strongly that what was said about race applied to all strands. It does, even more so under the uh, EHRC. Where the advice is about assessing and consulting on the likely impact of policies, it applies to all communities. I don't know whether the, uh, pu the public authorities who are here extend their understanding of that duty to all sections of the community, but I would positively recommend that out of the day they begin to do so. What you are required to do on race, please do to, in relation to all strands, and the other one I would add, that it's not unlawful to discriminate against, which is class or economic circumstance or whatever other, other word that you want to, to use. But people are treated less favourably because of their class. And to imagine that all lesbians, all LGBT people, are, experience the same set of circumstances because, for example, Elton John can throw million-dollar parties does not mean that every LGBT person is in a position to, uh, to, 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 to be as flamboyant. There are economic realities, class realities, racism is a reality, gender, both transgender and, and um, in, in disproportionate power between men and women. These are realities that need to be taken into account as local authorities, as public authorities, deliver services. Who is going to be affected by this policy? How can I consult real communities about the impact? Not simply to tick a box to say we've consented, but to hear from those communities how that proposal might be made better. It's local communities who... Local people, ordinary people who use services, who know what is best about those services. And what has happened, it seems to me, the gap between what the government says and what it does is that it doesn't see equality at the heart of what it does. The government itself doesn't do this. Only this week I um, was foolish enough to apply for a post which I'm sure I shan't get, which is the, a non-executive um, board member of the Government Equality Office. I applied. I don't know how I got an application, but anyway, I, I, I put the blasted thing in when I realised... This is, what, half an hour before the closing date, uh, well, closing time. Five o'clock was, was, um, was the 2nd of June, and I, and I thought, I'm sure somewhere in my, on my entry I've got this... Anyway, I pulled it out. I, wrote, I knocked something off, you know, sent my CV, and I said, in the covering thing, you did not ask any monitoring information, but I'll tell you anyway... I'm of African origin, I'm um, a lesbian, and what else did I say? I thought if I said I was a lesbian, I needn't, didn't, didn't, needn't say I was a woman. So, you know. um, <laughs> I, I, assumed, I assumed I'd guessed that one, um, but you can't be certain. <laughs> uh, and something else, 
But I, uh, essentially what I was saying to them is, how can you recruit for equality without knowing who you've attracted, who has applied? The very things that the government itself says we must do, they don't do themselves. And likewise, a piece of work I want to do, I don't know if I'm going to bother now, but anyway, the, uh, the Department of Health wants to train PCTs. And I've already, I already do some training around PCTs. And do you know what? Not one word about equality in all of the brief about what PCTs should be doing did I see any reference to these. And it's a duty, absolute legal duty. And if the government doesn't understand... So I'm really saying this because I know that uh, Peter will listen and he will take back my advice. <laughs> that the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm not holding my breath on it. But, um, <laughs> but what I'm saying applies equally to people who work for city councils, for health authorities, for universities. The same things apply. That equality is not just about inviting an out person to come to a meeting and sit at it whilst the decisions have already been made so that you can say that, well, we involved an LGBT person... I have seen people try to get away with that, certainly not much in my presence, but we need meaningful involvement in all aspects of service delivery, where it's not just, it is simply not just about us as victims, us as poor people who are getting old and frail, although many of us are in that position as well. But it, we, we are more than that. There are many things around how schools operate, how teachers operate, how youth clubs operate, where the youth provision is. And if the government carry on with their misguided view about social cohesion, such that some organisations have used the rhetoric of social cohesion to mean we cannot have any specific and dedicated provision for particular community need. That's what they, they have tried to suggest that, for example, South Hall Black Sister, Sisters, which is an organisation that has for was it, nearly 25 years, met the needs of Asian women in particularly, not, they're not only in, South, um, in, in, um, in, in London, but, but nationally, that such an organisation need not exist anymore because, for example, women's aid or refuge meet the provision. Of course, there's no evidence that either of them, those organisations do meet the provision because they don't monitor. And how do I know? Because I train some of them. They don't monitor. Most organisations don't monitor. I know I need to stop soon. But I want to, to say something really important about monitoring. Um, my partner, when, when she worked at Waltham Forest, London Borough of Waltham Forest, um, about how many years ago was it? Probably about 10 years ago, introduced by stealth monitoring into the routine characteristics of what the, the, the local authority did. So it's a matter of absolute routine. Everybody was asked about their heterosexual LGB or T status. The wording of the T was a bit crude then, and we've since you know, we've subsequently taken advice, etc. But whilst they were being asked all these other questions, they were asked their LGBT or H status. It happened as a consequence, and in fact it happened... In such a way, it was not an issue. People simply routinely answered, I got forms back, and people, most people were H, heterosexual. It wasn't a problem. They didn't have a problem in 
completing it, completing that information. But there had been some prior uh, public, you know, work done with staff. It's not negotiable whether we ask people about their ethnicity. It's, it's a duty to ask. It isn't a duty for anyone to say, by the way, and that would apply to LGBT. It, it's not mandatory for, um, for somebody to have to answer, the, uh, answer that question. But it is the duty of a local authority to ask, and, a public, and, and health must ask. Having asked, where do they record the information and what do they do with it? And the, that's the gap. And reading, as I did recently, something really important about health uh, and the changes... Uh, there was a recommend. I know because I, I read the health, uh, the HSJ, the Health Sex Journal. I don't know why, but I do, and it had this statement about um, they're going to monitor. Excuse me. It's been a statutory duty for at least ten years to monitor, and then now they're going to. They're telling us that they're going to monitor. They have been monitoring. They haven't been recording. Department of Health haven't been insisting. I'm saying to LGBT people present here, and I'm saying to non-LGBT people who clearly have an interest, otherwise you wouldn't be here, consider monitoring systems that enable members of the public and staff to indicate their status. But the but is this. There must be security of the information. You must tell people how it will be stored, how it will be used. My own preference, and this is what I've been recommending is that we ask people to give us information in which they provide only the first three or four digits of their postcode, not their name, but an, so that we can identify where roughly they live, but not precisely. People, a lot of people, will not give information of a sensitive nature if they can be identified on paper. I think it's very important that as a community, we LGBT people are willing to provide information, monitoring information. How otherwise are we ever going to argue for the resources that we're entitled to? It's very costly to do, uh, to do research, to try to do guesswork. It will be built up over time. Lots of people won't answer the questions. Not everybody we know who is LGBT is out, and they're not out in all situations. This is, has to be understood. But I believe that we create a, a climate of greater safety the more of us that are out. We were talking about this uh, earlier when we, when we met this morning. I don't personally, and I think we all agree, there are no more LGBT people today as a proportion of the, of the society than there were previously. It is simply safer to be out. And I believe that we make it safer still by monitoring, by providing information in an organisation, as a small example, in an organisation where you thought you were the only one, you filled in the box, the data comes back, anonymous, but as a percentage, showing they're actually 6%, and I suspect, actually, I've I know that the, um, it was, uh, who was it, a DTI did those estimate figures. We don't know, but it could be 8 to 10%. How will we ever know unless we have monitoring? And if we have anonymous monitoring, as I'm suggesting, and I can't imagine many people who would try who'd tick the box lesbian on the grounds of, and when they're actually heterosexual, on the grounds that they're um, somehow going to do us all some disservice. Most people would avoid that box as far as they can, or the gay one, or the bisexual one, if they're not. So people do tend to answer 
accurately if they know why and if they have reassurances about how the information will be used. That's a very good practical thing that can happen as of today, that you go back, consult about how to monitor, what to monitor, when to monitor, and it is an important question about when, If people feel that they must tell you their sexual orientation before they receive services, they will be resentful, and I think rightly so. There are appropriate times to gather information, and there are appropriate times to respond immediately to somebody's needs. So some consultation, some involvement from communities, sometimes our communities can be overcautious, and we can be dominated by people who are overcautious because for historical reasons that we understand. But I believe that now is the time for boldness, that we need to consolidate the gains we've made. Clearly, there's a lot of progress that has been made, or this conference would not be happening today. But I think we need to take it further. We need to understand what the law requires us to do. How can you, for example, comply with the duty not to uh, discriminate on the grounds of employment or goods and services if you don't monitor? How will you know whether the number of people who've used your services or are employed are reflective of your community. You won't know. You might hope. You might finger in the wind stuff. But we need now to have factual information. So I think I've gone through my little list. No, the last thing I wanted to say was equality... Well, consolidate what I've said about equality impact assessments. It's a requirement which is largely not met... Huge government departments, councils. I hope Leicester City Council is different. It used to be in the forefront of equality. But publishing full and partial equality impact assessments in which there is an explanation as to what was considered, who was consulted, how they were consulted, that's a legal requirement. And it is also within our power, all of us as individuals to hold public authorities to account for complying. So there's changes in the law that don't just say that the old CRE and the DRC and the EOC can take public authorities to task. Um, Actually, practical thing for the centre, which is start a fighting fund for judicial reviews or get some friendly solicitor and, 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 uh, and barrister on side to take public authority, to challenge public authorities using judicial reviews. It is a tool that is within our power. Any individual can do it. Any organisation can do it. Their only restriction on individuals is it costs a heck of a lot of money. So, you know, having, lining up people to do a few test cases would be a good thing. And I think that's really going to move the agenda forward. Because if we wait for the chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission to do anything, I think we'll be long dead. Thank you. Linda Bellos there, speaking at Leicester City Football Ground. In the next episode of Just Plain Sense, you can hear how I followed Linda's no-nonsense presentation. Until then, from me, Christine Burns, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.